History Lecture 30, Rabbi Blyweiss. Today we get to talk about one of the great Sadiqim of all times, Chizkiyahu HaMelech. We met him already. We met him when he was but a mere lad, I think they say up in Manchester. Uh, something like that effect. Um, he, his, he survived the... Uh, he survived the... Uh, his father, Achaz, attempted to serve him to the Molech. His mother, whose name we actually know, Avi Bas Zacharia, um, smeared him with a special ointment, and by miracle he's able to survive the fire of, uh, by being thrown into the Molech. Um, and he grows up, and he was 25 when he um, took the throne. Uh, he became the king. It was the third year of Hoshea ben Allah in the north. So the north has not yet fall, fallen, but it's going to imminently. He winds, winds up ruling for 29 years, and his first order of business, you remember that his father, Ahaz, is one of the worst. Uh, he still gets a portion of the world to come, but just barely. And, um, and the first order of business of his son is to clean up the mess, which you sometimes have to wonder, how does that work? How does a Russia beget a tzaddik? And I'll tell you, it's really almost as much of a beguiling question as how much does a tzaddik beget a Russia? But it does come to show you that, and you remember this is one of the redeeming virtues, the reason why Ahaz was not one that's said to not merit a portion of the world to come is because he's the sandwich between two tzaddikim, his father and his son. How does that happen? And we see that that happens periodically in history, and it's reasonable for us. You can do everything in your power as a parent, um, and sometimes you're, not in, you're never in control, but sometimes your best efforts uh, will not yield evident uh, rewards, benefits, and kids don't always pan out. Um, I mean, sometimes parents mess up their kids, don't get me wrong, but in his case, it's the, it's the opposite. His parents set the worst kind of model and Chizkiyahu had it in his blood from the line of David and Melech um, that uh, he's going to turn everything around. From this point, you realize we are referred to officially in history as Jews. It's also reasonable to call us Klal Yisrael. That's a timeless name for us. We're the sons, we're the children of Yisrael, of Yaakov Avinu. But we're Jews, specifically, as we've mentioned in the past, because with the loss of the nine and a half tribes in the north, the southern tribe emerges as the central base for Klal Yisrael, the southern tribe which is dominated by Yehuda. Binyamin is right next door, but as it were, is subservient to Yehuda. So they too are part of Eretz Judea, the Judean monarchy, or, or the Mamleches Yehuda. Um, Levim and the Kohanim similarly are subsumed, as was Shimon. And so Yehuda begets Yehudim, and that means that we are now from this point on literally and reasonably called Jews. Um, Yehuda being the d common denominator of our people. Chizkiyahu um, edited books. The Gemara says in Baba Basra he's credited with books like uh, Yeshayahu. He was an editor, even though clearly Yeshayahu wrote it. He edited Mishle Shir Shirim and Kohelis. And we said this. Uh, we said this a while back when we talked about Shlomo. Hey, I thought Shlomo was the one who authored with author those books. And there clearly was some kind of, um, they, 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 were, they had some kind of a partnership where Shlomo had, came up, really generated the, 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 uh, the essence of the books, but Chizkiyahu had a big hand in bringing them together. Uh, clearly a very special individual. 
And um, then the Gemara Brachos, if you want to learn a lot about Chizkiyahu, you learn in the first chapter of Brachos on Yud, Amud Aleph, and Beis. We learn a very important story about him. Um, <clears throat> he and the Navi refuse to visit one another. The great Navi in the day is Yeshaya. Chizkiyahu is also a great Navi. And it seems to harken back to another time when the Gadol Hador didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't visited by the uh, Kohen Gadol. What am I thinking of? History Review? When was the time that they wouldn't see each other and then they had an urgent matter of business? They should have really oh, visited one, one another? Excellent, Arye. Good for you. Arye, you got it? Other than Dude, is there any better name you have for the band? King? King, uh, no Kings there, they were Shof team. And the Shof it was named? I want to open this one up for you, so you can guess it. Great question. I'm just opening up, opening up the question to all of you, so you can get it. I will. What's that? Yud starts with the yud, ends with an iftach. Hey, he's good that one. Yiftach, yiftach hashofet. And I was saying he will open up because that's yiftach. He will open up. Um, and the kohen gadol in those days, Pinchas. That was the story. Uh, this is not exactly the same, but similarly because both figures in each story were motivated L'shem Shemaim, but Hashem is still not pleased. Hashem is not pleased, and Hashem sends an illness to the king, to Chizkiyahu, and by sending the illness to the king, as it were, Kaddish Baruch Hu is forcing the Navi to do Biker Cholim. Because the great, the Gadol Hador in Nevuah is certainly going to go visit the king uh, to visit the sick, to do the holy mitzvah of Biker Cholim, um, and that's what he does. The Navi comes to Chizkiyahu and he, it's kind of an irregular uh, visiting the sick. You know, one part of our obligation when we visit the sick is to um, pick up their spirits and give them, give them hope and, and, and take care of their affairs and, and the like. So Yeshaya's uh, way of doing that, um, okay, he's a Navi, he knows more than we do, but he tells them, Chizkiyahu, you're, you're not meant much longer for this world. And you know what? Neither are you meant so much for the next world either. So I don't know about you, it wouldn't have done it for me if I was the sick one, but Chizkiyahu, in his greatness, turns to the Navi and he says, why? And Yeshai explains, because you're neglecting a holy mitzvah. Did you know this? Chizkiyahu refused to have children. And Yeshayahu says, why are you not having children? And Chizkiyahu explains. He says, I have, I have through a, through a prophecy, that my progeny, if I have children, will turn sour. They'll be evil men. And uh, that's not acceptable to me, and therefore I'm not going to have the children. And the Navi's response very strongly, and it's, it's a very powerful lesson for all of history, that's a Kaddish Baruch Hu's business. Our job, we do mitzvahs. We do our best in this world. We don't plan, we don't go against. We have a formula for a good life. It's called the Torah. You follow the Torah, let a Kaddish, and, and you do your best, Shem Shemaim, you let a Kaddish Baruch Hu take care of how people turn out. Um, the king says, okay, it's quite a negotiation. It's a really interesting Gemara. You can look it up inside. It's very worthwhile. It's the, bo it's the bottom of Brachos, Yudam Aleph. And the king said, okay, you want me to have children? Fine. Um, he doesn't say this, but I, I'm, I'm interjecting. Put your money where your mouth is, Navi. Uh, is your daughter available for a shidduch? Can I marry your daughter? 
In other words, thereby making Yeshaya implicit, you know, complicit, you know, okay, do you really believe that we're supposed to do our job? Okay, your daughter will be my wife and the mother of these so-called, you know, children that you claim, you know, I'll do my best and you know, they'll come out however they come out. At least this way, when you have good yichis, you know, coming from a good holy family, you have the best chance, as it were, to try to raise good kids. And to his credit, the Navi says, certainly. His daughter's name is Chefziva. And, um... Chizkiyahu, in a great sign of emuna, says, I accept everything you say. He says, even when it, you're lying with a sharp sword dangling over your neck, a person never gives up. He faces the wall, very dramatically also. He turns to the wall, so he has some privacy. He davens. Hashem accepts his tefillah and prolongs his life. And so even though the Navi got a correct nevuah that he was slated to die, but that was the old when a person makes tshuva, he's, as it were, a different person. That's why we go to the mikveh as his final stage in tshuva. When you go to the mikveh, it's the makkeh How's that for incorporating morning shear? We've I talked about makkeh v'patish, talked about mikveh, uh, lots, lots of, lots of, lots of uh, um, topical themes. And um, a person who goes to the mikveh and changes and makes tshuva is not the same person anymore. So the previous person, indeed, was slated for death. This new chizkiyahu who's taken upon himself, I will get married, I will attempt to have children, Thereby making tshuva, he prolonged his life. One of his first acts, I mentioned it yesterday, was to go send, send his men to the north to find the scattered remnants of the tribes that were not carted off to Ashur and to invite them down to Yerushalayim after Hoshea had removed the guards, come spend Pesach in Yerushalayim. It's before, excuse me, I said that incorrectly. It's before the north has fallen. Um, and he invites whoever's around to come and spend the, spend Pesach, and some accept the invitation, not enough, but some from Asher, Ephraim, Menashe, Yisachar, and Zvulun join their brothers, Yehuda and Binyamin in the south for unprecedented rejoicing. You can imagine what kind of a family reunion after all of these many generations, after over 250 years. Uh, it's so inspiring, many make tshuva, it's the first united, semi-united Pesach celebrated since the days of Shlomo HaMelech. It's three years later, during his last, during, during, um, during, during the sixth year of Chizkiyahu, that the, um, the last of the ten northern tribes are exiled. That too inspires many in the south to make tshuva. But here's what's a little strange now. You know, you can live during cataclysms, major events. I mean, let's bring it down to our level. We just had a terrorist attack just outside our window. Uh, maybe it's, we're, still, we're still all in denial or it's the shock is too fresh for us to take, it, take, take account of the significance of the event. So how do you react to that? What are you going to do about that in your life? A lot of reactions. A lot of people just go on business as usual. That's a kind of denial. Um, some people, sadly, will, will react badly. Uh, may react badly, that's not inevitable, but we know this is true. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and people take it the wrong way and uh, they'll, they'll use it as an excuse to not be from or to be less from or to do other bad things. And other people will say, life is really short, that could have been me, I better get my act together. A lot of different responses and we find the same, the same effect. You'd think such a national trauma of losing nine and a half of our, of our tribes would have a galvanizing effect in the South that they would say, okay, let's get our act and do it. And indeed it does. But in others, 
Others have the opposite reaction. Chizkiyahu at this point has had a couple of kids and um, they're going to grow up in the shadow of this national devastation, this national trauma, the loss of the northern kingdom, and um, they're not going to react well at all. Um, it's a time in history, and there are only a few times like this we can point to identifiably on the historical timeline where um, tshuva is in the air, an opportunity is imminent. It's a time with among the greatest promise imaginable. Some say in modern days, anybody anybody have a parallel in, in, in within within uh, my lifetime? Um, people sometimes point to um, June. You have to be specific. 8, 1967, Yerushalayim is unified. And uh, a few days later, all the Jews rushed down for the first time in 1900 years as a sovereign nation over the area of the Kosel Maravi, and they touched, they touched the stones of the Kosel. And you can talk to people who were there. They, they're still alive, right? It's only, only, only um, it's, it's 47 years ago. And, um, Are you there, Rabbi? What's that? <laughs> I was one years old. And uh, and they say that they felt Mashiach was on his way. That it was seemingly the most tangible feeling in the air that we're living in messianic days. Didn't quite turn out like they thought. At least not. At least not. At least not quite yet. But there are times in history that it feels like it's in the air. It's imminent. Maybe we're living in those such times too, and we're just deluded and dense. We don't. We don't. We can't. We can't figure that out. Uh, but unquestionably, and you're going to hear, you're going to hear why. Stay tuned for this. I wish most of our, more of our heavy was here because I'm about to get one of my favorite moments in history. Uh, it's the, the Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, is on a, on a, on a level uh, that we is, is seldom been paralleled in history. There was quite a surge to such a degree that Gemara, Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us, Mashiach." HaKadosh Baruch Hu actually, whatever this means, sought to make Chizkiyahu no less than the final messianic king, the Mashiach himself. The Sancheriv, the current tyrant, the ruler of Ashur, Sancheriv, Gog Umagog. Gog Umagog being the final days, the ultimate battle, the ultimate enemy of Klal Yisrael, Sancheriv was said to be exactly that. And it didn't quite turn out that way as follows. Here's the story. Um, Chizkiyahu had a, had, had a very positive record, not perfect. As Chazal tell us in the Gemara Psachim and also in Brachos, he did six things, prominent things. I'm going to mention many more, but for some reason the Gemara singles out these. Three, Shalosh, Al Shlosha Hodulo, Al Shlosha Lohodulo. On three of them, the great sages of his time gave thanks to him and agreed that what he did was good, and three they didn't. Um, the very specific things, they had, the Jewish people had a remnant from the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, something called the Sefer Refuos. There used to be a book of remedies. And that Chizkiyahu took the book of remedies and he put it into a Gniza, Shemos, a repository of holy, of holy writings and his motivation, and, and here, was an here was one of the three things that he did well, it was a good thing that he did this, um, because better than Jews should, re should not rely on a book for their cures, they should rely on the Rofe Cholim, capital Reish. 
even though there really isn't a capital Rish in Hebrew, right? You understand who I'm referring to. Kaddish Baruch Hu, sometimes you, you rely too much on the antibiotic, and we don't recognize that Kaddish Baruch Hu is behind the cures. The second thing he did that, that uh, was a valid, valorous thing, um, you remember the Nechash and Nechoshes? Parshas Chukas? Um, the, there was a, a copper snake that Klal Yisrael had made in, uh, in their wars and was a sign of victory that many years later was, was saved and many years later became another snare. Careful of all these objects. You know, there's a reason why we don't have much authentic Judaica in Jewish life. We're not a very thingy-oriented religion. There's a reason for that. We take to make the, tend the, we elevate these things to the level of the Vodazara, like the Nachash and Nachoshis, and he finally comes along after all these generations and crushes it, pulverizes it to smithereens. And, and, and the rabbis of his generation uh, thanked him for that. Um, he, one of the things was he took the bones of his father, the, the, the wicked Achaz, and he took it from his, from his grave and he dragged it around on, um, with ropes, which is a public show of disgrace to his father's way of showing this is what happens to you when you worship a Vodazara. And um, Chazal thanked him. And uh, in modern days, I don't know if you know contemporary history, when um, Khrushchev became the ruler of the USSR, he took jo Joseph Stalin's body and gave it the same treatment. He probably had a Bible in hand when he did it too, because you know they were they, the Russian Orthodox are Christians and they know they know these stories. And and Stalin was such a such a villain that he wanted to demonstrate publicly that that uh, you know we're, we're turning a new leaf. Those are the three good things. The three bad things. Wait, father was a Yeah. Even the Kibbutz Abbein. Great topic. I have, I have uh, how many takes do I have on the subject? How many, how many lectures on the subject? There, this is an illustration of the exception. When a father is a Russia beyond the pale, um, sometimes this kind of extreme measure is called for, and he's completely, he was completely legitimate in what he did. The three bad things, who's been to the, what they call, this Elon, you love this. Where, um, who's been to the city of David, what they call Ir David today? You walk in the tunnel that they call Chizkiyahu's tunnels. Our Chizkiyahu, who's walked there? Now, this time of year, it gets a little cold down there. Um, the original, he, take, he took the water from the original Gihon Spring that's right outside of the city of Yerushalayim, and he made a tunnel so that the Jews in times of siege would have water inside the city. And you can go there today, and I think it's almost certainly the same thing. Among other things, they found an inscription on the wall that's now hanging in a museum in Britain. It's the nurse. No, no, the copy the is copy, there. Yeah. The original is, 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 is uh, back in back in uh, Britain, in London, I think. And um, But it has Chizkiyahu's name written in Ksav yeah, Ivri, written in the script that they used back in the day. Apparently only two people, one started from one Clearly, clearly. Yeah, You've been you heard the whole spiel. All tour guys have to say that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's probably true. It no, seems no, evident, no, evidently. They're coming from two different sides. It's a miracle, it's a miracle that they even right, right. All kinds of questions. So everybody tells that. I don't know if your tour guide told you the following. This is one of the three things that that the, that the rabbis did not give him credit for. Do not see as a great as, as a great accomplishment. They say because it lacked faith. He should have had a Muna that a Kaddish Baruch who would take care of Klal Yisrael in times of war. No, but, but, I mean, I had to, that's, that's so it's interesting. So people ask Akash and they say, what about Ishtadlus? There's Bitochon, there's Ishtadlus. Aren't we supposed to do our part? Yeah, in the world, you can't rely on a miracle. And, and I said, you know, the joke. It's told towards this end, this is the Kasha. 
I'm going to defend this, but the joke is told um, like this, that the, uh, the guy is in a boat that's going down, and uh, the people all uh, you know, correctly go into the lifeboat, and they say, come to the lifeboat. He said, no, no, it's okay. I've got a bitachon, a gashbar, who will take care of me. And the boat goes down, and they're all in the lifeboat, and um, he's going down. And so they, they, they throw him a life preserver, and he said, no, no, I have bitachon, a gashbar, who will take care of you, and uh, take care of me. And then they throw him a rope. It's his last opportunity. Grab it quick before you, you go down for good. And he says, no, no, I'll be, I'll be okay. I'll be safe. And um, he drowns and goes to heaven. And, and he goes and when he gets to the Basin Shomayla, he asks, he said, but I had such pitachon. And of course, in Basin Shomayla, he's informed, yeah, and we sent a boat. And we sent a lifesaver, life preserver. And we sent a rope. That's the joke told by the people who advocate Hishtadus. And they have a, they have a point. Because on some level we're supposed to do ishtadlus, other than itself as a machlokis post scheme, some say we don't have to do our ishtadlus. There is an opinion that, um, that a person, but that depends who the we is, no, people I mean, on an extraordinarily people, high level of faith who really in, recognize and internalize that Gersh Baruch is responsible for everything, a they exceptionally um, don't necessarily have to do ishtadlus, and Gersh Baruch will, will take care of them. Um, but let's say the average guy, Rav Moshe Paskin, for example, that a person, even even a high-level person, has to do some minimal kind of ishtadus for a living, has to take ishtadus for certain things, and presumably, what one way we can explain this Gemara is to say that Chazal felt Chizkiah was different. He was a person of extraordinary bitachon, having lived that way, if he had played his life out with that kind of level of bitachon, a Kodesh Baruch would indeed have taken care of him without having to dig uh, a hole. So if you're outraged and you want to know how we should, how we should react to this, because Aryeh and Baraki both asked the question, I would say maybe for most of us, we need to do more Ishtadlus because maybe our generation has less bitachon, but if we were Chizkiyahu, we would expect it to do less, and a Kodesh Baruch Hu would indeed do more for us. It's almost like when he made this tunnel, it's almost like he's creating an iron arch. I'm saying, because he's expecting for that, he was expecting for the new time time siege, right? For That's an interesting, and I think a reasonable explanation of what Chazal is saying about him and criticism. Right? That in, in other words, it's, it's what we, you know, Al tip tachpela satan, don't open your mouth to satan, don't tempt the fates, they say. And, you know, and the, the, right? And maybe it's, 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 it's creating a you know, self fulfilling prophecy. The other two things that he did that, that Chazal did not appreciate, he, um, he, he took down the, the doors to the Heichal, to the part of the base of Mikdash, and sent them to the king of Ashur. Uh, as a way of appeasing him, but this also lacked bitachon, more obviously, and in the Gemara that I happened to just do recently in Sanhedrin, he, um, remember those people he brought down to celebrate Pesach, none of them were clean and pure, and he um, made a mistake in Halacha, he made, the, he made an Ibor Shana, he made a leap here by having two Nisans instead of two Adars, and that was against Halacha. He did it Lishma. That's a massive no, it wasn't. If you look at Sanhedrin, he actually had a different psaac, and it was a, it was a minor mistake. But he should have known better. He would, yeah, it sounds more shocking than it really was. Go look up at the Gemara in Sanhedrin. You'll see it's not quite as, as grievous a sin as, as it sounds like. Um, but those are those are six things. Um, but he did a lot more. Sancheriv, the the uh, the enemy of this generation, has been making a clean sweep. And as we said in Chazal, he's the same Tiglas Pileser, the same Shalmaneser. And, and he's the same king of Ashur, and he means to conquer the whole region. He's going down and he's gonna conquer Egypt, and on the way, he wants Jerusalem. He's gotten the north, and he wants the south too. 
Chizkiyahu is now 14 years into his monarchy. Initially, he tries to buy him off. Doesn't work. And the problem is, he's not sure that his generation collectively has the merits, has the schuyos, to be able to withstand a war against the North, against, against Asher. And it's shocking that he doesn't think that they have merits. Because I'm going to share with you now why, after 14 years of as king, his generation, while I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, um, the generation of Chizkiyahu HaMelech, you decide if they have collective merits. Here's what's on their resume. Extreme righteousness. Beginning, also Gemara and Sanhedrin. Chizkiyahu built the greatest system of education ever. He surpassed Moshe and Yoshua. He surpassed Shlomo, his ancestor. All of whom had stellar Torah education. And the Gemara, the, 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 the Pasuk says, Badku Midan Va'ad Beersheba. They checked all the way north from Dan and all the way down to Beersheba, which is another way of saying colloquially that, excuse me, this is the Gemara, not, not a Pasuk. They checked all around the country. Velo Matzo Amha'aretz. They didn't find one ignoramus. Everybody, man, woman, child, everybody knew all of the halacha. No, they found no one who wasn't expert in Hilchos Tuma and Tara. I don't know if you know this, but the laws of Tuma and Tara are among the most intricate in all of Shas. And if the if if, an, if a random thirteen year old girl on the street knew every last halacha in Tuma and Tara, that was an unprecedentedly high level of education and very much in the merit of their of their righteous king, Chizkiyahu, like some of his ancestors went around made it his priority not only to drag his father's bones but to uproot all of the Avodah in the land he went around the entire country especially in the south at least and up purged the land of Avodah Zarah was that? the entire generation was on a level of redemption um, we saw this in last week's Parsha notice I conspicuously ignored your question we saw this in Parsha in Sefer, in Parshas Noah, that we have near the end of the Parsha, it says that there are, um, there are certain generations who don't need a rainbow. Why is there a rainbow? Rainbow is part of the covenant. That's why if you look at the bracha uh, that we say when we witness, when we, when we encounter rainbows, it says that a Kaddish Baruch who um, keeps his promise, keeps the pact that's symbolized by the rainbow, a couple generations never need a rainbow because their righteousness is so on such, on such a high level, there's no need for the promise. The only generations that need a promise of a rainbow are those who have evil, where we're not sure, uh-oh, is there going to be a flood again, or is there not going to be a flood? Oh, look, there's the rainbow. Hashem said there'll never be a flood, even if it gets really bad, there won't be, there won't, there won't be a flood because there's a rainbow as a reminder. But a couple generations don't need the, the, the rainbow. One of them is Chizkiyahu Amelos. And we haven't seen that yet. That's how righteous this generation is. And we know the other generation that the that, uh, Chazal bring, that Rashi brings, as, 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 the, as the example, no, it wasn't Shlomo. It's much later. It's much later. It's much later. Who's, who's the other generation that didn't need a rainbow? No, definitely not us. Not Shimon Tzadik Tzadik either. Well, then you'll have to stay tuned for history, won't you? Or either that or look up Rashi. You can look up Rashi too on the Pasuk. It's, uh, don't guess. Look it up. We'll get to it. Sure, sure enough, we will get to it. Bezras Hashem. Um, so they don't need a rainbow. This is how righteous the generation is. And 
after generations of otherwise righteous kings, I remind you of such stellar figures as Shlomo HaMelech, Asa, who's likened to David, Yehoshaphat, the early phase of Yehoash, and many, many others, all tried and failed to remove the Bamos. Chizkiyahu arose and got rid of the Bamos 12 generations later. Wow. He simply made it a priority. He said, these are usr, and his command and his authority was such that Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, listened to him. And he got rid of the rainbows. He got rid of the Bamos, excuse me, he got rid of the Bamos. And if you've been plugged in on any level for the last couple weeks, doesn't this chill you? You know, there's such a drama. You know, like all these righteous kings, but they didn't get rid of the Bamos. And finally, Chizkiyahu himself comes along. How righteous the king? Now you understand why. Now, does, does, does the Gemara make any more sense? Having heard all this, do we have? does it shed new light when the Gemara says, Bikesh HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lasos Chizkiyahu Mashiach? HaKadosh Baruch was ready to make the man Mashiach then and there. I mean, it makes sense. Well, it's going to It makes sense because uh, once nobody's an ignoramus, they have no excuse. They have to get rid of it. That That's fair. That's fair, although we've already explained the, the amazing the capacity of human beings, cognitive dissonance, to somehow live, even if they're righteous, but to live with an eagle here and a pestle there and Michal's pestle over there. And, you know, somehow it works. He got rid of the Bamos. Recognize the, uh, how significant, what, how, how, what, the, the achievement that, that that really was. The fact that he got rid of the Bamos and the brain of Amazing. Because if you think about it, if you got into the Bamos, Bamos, then people are going to stop worshiping the Vedas because we don't have anything to do. Right. Oh, beautiful, Jake. Right. In other words, they, they, these things overlap one with yeah. the other. And yet, he still wasn't convinced. I guess he was a perfectionist. He expected a high level. And it didn't quite turn out the way Chazal said. In other words, he, he wasn't Mashiach. And the first uh, indication that the story is not going to have the happiest of endings is we meet his sons. He has two sons, one maybe more famous, Menashe. The other one, this is Chazal putting two and two together, is identified as the same Rav Shake. Rav Shake is the other, saint, the other son who becomes the prototypical Mumar, a re rebel against Hashem. He's a Mumar Lahachis, and... Um, what happens is, Sancheiriv comes down and sets siege to Yerushalayim. And Rav Shake goes to the other side. He becomes Asher's spokesman against Klal Yisrael. He stands on the walls of the city and he proclaims, There's no God and he won't help you anyway since you don't deserve it. Which is one of my favorite um, sayings because it, it's, it, it, it's a... Um, it reminds me, um, it, it seems to anticipate a very famous humorous statement from the 20th century, Groucho Marx, who said, um, Waitress, the food in this place is terrible, and there's not enough of it. Right? It's, not, it's, not right? it's the same kind of thing. Like, there's no God, and even if there is, then, that's most atheists, by the way. You know the expression, no atheist in a foxhole? Yes, most atheists aren't even atheists at Exactly. It's usually something that people who haven't given uh, the notion of a Kaddish Baruch Hu 
um, a second thought after they left third grade and they grew up with, with, with silly notions of, of, a, of an old man with a flowing beard and, 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 a, and a grand throne. Um, and, and, and that's a simplistic notion usually informed by Christianity um, that people reject having never given it further thought but they're embarrassed at their ignorance so they give it a fancy title they call themselves like atheists well, or agnostics. Atheism and religion. Like, exactly. When you like, um, you know, when no one's around, say, "Come on!" Like, you know, something just happened. Yeah, yeah. Right. Who are you talking to? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. I have to say, to be fair, to be fair, there are people who fit, who who who, who are self-described atheists, who actually have quite a complex and well-informed background. So it's not that everybody, everybody who's called atheist is, is an idiot, just most. Atheists really believe that they're not a god. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I mean, the, the, the logical re re retort is there has to be a god for you to disbelieve so vehemently. Meaning, if you if there really wasn't, then they'd be more passive about it. But so much of their identity is formed in disbelief, based around the disbelief that, in a sense, God actually plays a central role in their lives, in the, in, in, ironically. Anyway, Rav Shach is, a, is a, you know, claiming such a thing. Um, Jewish officers tell him to speak, speak the other language, speak the Ashuris language. Don't speak Ivris, because you know, the other Jews are going to hear you and you're going to demoralize them if you speak our language. Um, Yeshaya, meanwhile, is unconcerned. He said, it's not a problem. Hashem will close my grandson's mouth. Hashem will take care of him. He'll get his just desserts. Um, there's another bad guy who's on the scene, who's also the Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us about him. His name is Shafna. He's, an, he, um, he's significant in the following way. He has more students than Chizkiyahu. And he takes a vote among his students um, that, um, do you want to surrender to Ashur, to Sancheriv, or not? And his students say, yes, we will follow you wherever, wherever you lead. Um, Chizkiyahu, of course, refuses. Um, Shavna is the ultimate traitor. He sends, an, he sends a message on an arrow over to the other side saying, we voted and uh, the vote came out in your favor. We're going to surrender. I'm going to lead the Jews into surrender, so reward me. Uh, this scares Kiskiyahu. He says, hey, they've got the majority. Maybe the majority rules as it usually does in Halacha. And the Yeshaya, the Navi, tells him it's not a problem. They have the they they have a kesher they have a connection we saw a conspiracy but the but in this case kesher means they have a consensus but a kesher this is an important expression kesher rishayim uh, majority of wicked people ena mina minion doesn't count doesn't make a minion when you have a kesher of, of rishayim they don't count. And indeed, the Gemara ends the story. Shavna leads his entourage to go and have this this royal grand surrender to the enemy, and he leaves the city walls. And Hashem, Hashem sends Gavriel, the angel, down, who immediately after Shavna leaves the city walls, Gavriel closes the walls on his followers, and they're stuck back in the city. Shavna, meanwhile, is proudly mounting out, and he says, "Come on, man, let's go surrender." When he gets to the other camp. Sanheru says, hey, where are, you told us you had a majority. Where are your followers? You told us that you're surrendering to us. And Shavna says, why there? I mean, they... Oops. Um, and, um, and they take his body and they drag it around. Oh, they actually... 
uh, I can't remember, Arya, you would love this too, it's so graphic. The Gemara describes in gory detail his end, but I refer you to the Gemara in Sanhedrin uh, for, further, for further inquiry. Um, uh, uh, yeah, please. That, uh, it's on, what is it, where is it? It's Chaf something. Chaf something. I can get I can get you the source if you want it. Yeah. You know you said about uh, Russia and that they don't have like in a in a minute. And I want to elaborate on that, but go ahead, ask did your question. Mean, did that mean that Russia's dead and they Absolutely the correct question, and that's what I was going to say. This has an important impact on on, on uh, halacha lemaisa. If, for example, uh, what is my example here? Right. For example, um, it's also for men to wear begadisha. It's also for women to wear begadish. Can't wear the dress. You can't cross dress. Um, but who determines halachically this style of dress? And the answer is Klal Yisrael. And who counts as Klal Yisrael? Shomer Torah Mitzvos. Shomer Shabbos. The other people, the people who are not Shomer Shabbos, that means they're not technically from. That, that means we can't trust their kashrus. That means we, uh, we say Kaddish for them for 12 months instead of 11th months because they're technically halachically Rishayim and many other things. Therefore, their pattern of dress, their style of dress, doesn't matter. We look at what the Jewish people who are from, they're doing, and, and, and everything else follows. Kesher Rishayim Enum in a minion. I think Daniel was first, and Barak. No, 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 I didn't answer my question. Okay, fine. Barak? And so anybody who's not showing a Shabbos can't be an Aiden, can't be a witness? Witness, Usually, yeah, yeah, that's 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 pretty clear at school. Shomer Shabbos before Hesia, can't. So you've got nine men, and one of them. Is Maybe we count them in a minion. Yeah, no, that's a different question. We tend, we tend. Usually, we give them the benefit of the doubt if they showed up to minion. They're at least showing some kind of interest. Um, but but when it comes to halachic matters, they really don't count. For sure, for sure. And the given aliyahs, those are different questions. Each halacha needs to be evaluated in its own right. There, we are lenient with this in certain areas, but um, and a lot of discussions. You know, we talk about the importance of the consensus of Klal Yisrael, and of course, we love all Jews, Shomer Shabbos and not Shomer Shabbos, but they only really count when they're playing the game, when they're playing by the rules, and they don't count. They don't get a vote if they're not. Um, Sancheriv has descended, there's a, he brings, as the Gemara reports to us in Sanhedrin again, 45,000 princes in golden chariots, uh, each is, uh, escorted by princesses and harlots, 80,000 warriors wearing these big, intimidating coats of mail, like the Medi, you can picture the old, the old uh, armory that the, that the warriors wore, 60,000 swordsmen um, and cavalry, they total 185,000. And they're sitting around a relatively small Yerushalayim. They think Kathleen Kenyon feels that she found, it may be true, uh, the wall of the city from the days of Chizkiyahu. Um, you can picture the Jewish Quarter. Can I give you a, a virtual tour from memory if you, if you know your way around? If you're in the Jewish Quarter, and let's say you walk um, past the restaurants. There's a whole row of restaurants. And then you make, let's say you're coming back from the coastal and you're going out towards, let's say you're going to exit by Jaffa Gate, and you walk past the restaurants, you make a right turn, and then you go just a little bit of a way. If you look down, there's a massive, down below the ground level, a massive casemate ancient wall. They call it Chizkiyahu's wall. I think it makes sense that it is. And that shows you, the, if that's true, the extent of the city. The city, that was its northernmost point, what we call the Jewish Quarter today, that area um, where, Yushalayim, where Yushalayim had already extended from the days of David, which you remember was considerably, um, was, was southeast of there, and now the city's gotten bigger. So now they're all holed up inside the city. Um, these 185,000 men, 
from Ashur are ready to pounce. Um, in fact, the Gemara tells us three wars existed in history in which a massive uh, force confronted Jewish people. The first one we just had in last week's Parsha, Avram Avinu confronted four kings. Um, the second one is this. This is one of the great wars of all time to end all wars. And the third, of course, is the end of days, Milchemes Gog and Magog, uh, that we learn about in Yechezkel. It's not of this, of this not, not when it's the whole world lining up, besieging us. It's true that, the, that, they, that they murdered us, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't, it wasn't the same. Um, Jewish people didn't yeah, It's interesting. How do you compare it? It's, it's true. I don't know. I don't have an immediate answer. Why would that not have made the list? This is what Chazal say. These are the three, these are the three wars. Um, Sancheiruv had conquered a few towns already. Um, when he gets to Jerusalem, his soldiers beg him, King, attack immediately. Shah. King, attack immediately. And he turns to them and he says, You know what? You all look tired. You all look tired. Let's sleep on it overnight. These are famous last words. Get procrastinators tremble in your boots. He says, we'll sleep on it. That night, Pesach, Leila Seder, Gabriel comes down Minas Shemayim and smites 185,000 men, leaving the two different views. Some say five, some say 14 survivors in the camp. Gabriel, the angel, comes down Minas Shemayim and overnight smites almost the entire camp of Ashur, leaving either five or 14 survivors. Of the survivors, miraculously, of the survivors in the camp, they include Sancheriv himself. You know, sometimes it's worse to survive. You wake up and, you know, survivor's guilt and the trauma after the effect, it's easier to die. There are also a couple of very young soldiers who also survive. We don't know about them yet, but they're going to come out, come on the scene in a very big way. Their names are uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar. Oh yeah, the guy that, uh, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, my namesake, uh, Eunuch. Right, same one. That would be correct, Daniel. Huh? He, uh, Daniel. he had something to do with Daniel and his friends becoming eunuchs. Srisim. Um, later on, whatever happened to Sancheriv, later on we learn in, in, in the second book of Malachim that Sancheriv had two sons who eventually, when he, goes back to, when he goes back to Ashur, the two sons rise up and assassinate their father after he returns. Um, the two sons, either they or their descendants, will ultimately convert to Judaism in an interesting twist in history in which we find from the worst Russia comes some of the greatest tzaddikim because um, their two descendants will, will rise up and lead a generation of Akal Yisrael. Their names are Shmaya and Avtalion, descending from Sancheiruv. I'm um, sorry, Barak is missing all this. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty important, important, important uh, episodes. Now think about it. It's Leila Seder. 
you went to sleep, Leila Seder, expecting the worst, expecting a siege. You remember, it wasn't that many years earlier that the northern kingdom had been, had been taken away for good by the same Ashura that's now um, threatening and standing outside your city walls. You wake up the next morning and an undeniable miracle has befallen you. Right before your eyes, the entire camp, with, the, with a few exceptions, is lying, their corpses are lying um, out right in front of you on display. And it was, as you say in the Haggadah, half in the night, um, this miracle took place at the same time that Paros, the, the firstborn in Egypt, all perished, so too the camp of Ashur perished. Um, <clears throat> We are, this is an image to, to, to internalize, Klal Yisrael seems constantly poised in history on the verge of imminent extinction. Velanu, as we say in Leila Seder, and this, and Akadosh Baruch Hu stands up for us, um, right? In, Behold, Dor Bador, Amdu, Omdi Malenu they stand on us to exterminate us, just to wipe us out. And who saves us from their claws, from their hands. And they rise Pesach morning, and the mortal threat has suddenly vanished. And the king was supposed to do something. He was supposed to get up and sing a special song of praise to Kaddish Baruch Hu. Now, we do sing on, on, on Pesach morning anyway. We're saying Hallel. But Chizkiah was asked to say above and beyond the normal singing. And he didn't. And that was his tragic failure. His negligence to sing songs. Chazal grappled with this. This great king who had achieved unprecedented heights, who was almost the Mashiach, and um, this was his downfall. And the two, two explanations are suggest are, are, are given for this. One is Hashem Hamelch Koreinu. They had just cried out, Hashem will save us. He'll answer us. Um, and so we don't have to do much. He, as it were, taken Hashem too much for granted and assumed Hashem will always save, which is a great point of the Muna, but it's too much if you don't give him thanks at the same time. Our job is to sing songs of praise, like you remember Yoshafat singing the song as a Kaddish Baruch who brings the defeat of, the, of all of the Jews' enemies, and, and, and Chizkiyahu didn't take the cue. The second explanation is that he was mudas zos b'chol ha'aretz. It's known that Hashem does miracles. He was, uh, here's an expression, melumad benisim. He'd seen maybe one too many miracles, and he was maybe a bit jaded as a result. And he didn't have that wow reaction that he was supposed to have, and so he didn't sing Shira as he was supposed to. That is yeah, he's faulted, and therefore he was a Mashiach. Another he was okay. We're not supposed to be. We're not supposed to be that callous. We're not supposed to have our emotions dried up to the point that we don't see the miracles of Hashem. There's a third explanation given elsewhere in the psik, in, 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 in the, the psiksa of, of Echarava. Chizkiyahu says, I have no strength to pursue the enemy further. I have no strength to say Shira. I'll lie on my bed. Hashem will do what Hashem does. It's a variation in the previous explanations, but it's one of passivity. And the great king, who was supposed to be Mashiach, um, didn't rise to the challenge. And you missed a critical, that was the worst possible time you could have gone out, but I'll try to fill in the blanks or you'll listen to the, you'll listen to the recording afterwards. Um, 
so Chizkiyahu is not the king with all of his great valiant accomplishments. Asher is going to come and go. The new tyrant on the block is going to be Bavel. They're not quite, uh, they haven't quite reached their greatness. But it, the, the one last scene, also not a great a moment of pride for, for uh, Chizkiyahu, the one last scene of significance in his life is the new king, the new empire on the block, Bavel has a king by the name of, this is before Nebuchadnezzar, um, Merodoch Baladan. And he wants to visit this impressive Jewish king who actually repelled Assyria, Ashur, because nobody had done that yet, and uh, he must be somebody of consequence. So he sends messengers from Bavel, and Chizkiyahu greets them warmly. Okay, so far that's not so terrible. You're allowed to greet non-Jews warmly. He then shows them the plunder that the Jews had made off with from Ashur. This is, these are the spoils of victory. He then, and this is hard to understand, the Chazal tried to explain what was motivation, it was all the same Shemaim, but he does several Isurim. He takes these non-Jews into the compound of the base of Mikdash beyond the Soreg, which is the last point a non-Jew is permitted to go. Uh, he takes them into the Kodesh Kadoshim, which is also for everybody. He goes to the Aron Kodesh, the holy ark that's standing right there in the Holy of Holies, and he lifts the cover. And you all know what happened to those Nazis at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, don't you know? Right, right? So, and he, he, he lifts the Aron Kodesh, but it's all the Shem Shemaim. Listen to the end of the story. He shows them the Luchos, the tablets upon which the, the uh, Ten Commandments are written, and he explains. I didn't win this battle. The secret of our success is these. And it is really an act of great humility. He's not taking credit for this victory. I know. That's the problem with it. But you can see how he was motivated. He did it was completely wrong, but the purpose of what he's trying to do is very beautiful. And he's saying, I didn't do this. It's a lujo sabris which later he's rebuked again by the Navi Yeshaya, his father-in-law. Yeshaya comes and says, you're wrong. The secret of the success is not the Ten Commandments. It's Kalal Yisrael and their ability to keep the Ten Commandments. That's why Akadosh Baruch Hu helps us. He didn't mean it. He said the secret of our success is contained in these, not that we worship these. He never, he never would say, what is that? I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Mama's, mama's two seconds. Okay, fine, fine, fine. Thank you. Let me finish then. Let me finish. Um, the Gemara Senator says, the, the person invites a non-Jew into his house to serve him, causes gullus to his children. And um, some argue that this is the first, this is the beginning of the end for the southern kingdom, which we'll have to pick up tomorrow.